Thanks, Jason, for reading the Word of God to us. Even just as we read it, I just sense a conviction. And, uh, it's a very challenging passage. It's really packed with truth. This morning, as we just go through these 11 verses, it's a big chunk, but I think your hearts will be encouraged and provoked. Just before we get going, just to remind you, today's uh, Communion Sunday. So we have just the glorious opportunity during the second hour just to partake of the cup and the bread together. Remember what Christ has done for us. But just as part of our uh, heart at Cornerstone is, um, you know, we really believe that only believers partake of that. And so, if this is your first time or if you haven't partaken with us before, we just really ask that you know, before communion, before second hour, you just meet with uh, some of us over here. And we would just love to hear your testimony and just love to hear the power of the gospel in your life. And we would love, after that, just to partake of that blessed time with you. Well, you know, James is sick and I got the message Friday. So that's a trembling, you know, a trembling email. So be careful. Maybe next time it'll happen to you guys. Going to get the email two days before and find out you have to come preach. It's good. Tumbling it causes you to cling to the cross. And I think what James is going through is so appropriate to what he's been preaching. You know, that God sanctifies his sheep, that he prunes his children. And the, the connection he made was so clear that suffering doesn't sanctify us, but it causes us to cling to, to the cross. It causes us to cling to Christ. And this suffering that James is going through. You know, it's physical suffering. And he said it's the most pain he's been in. Talked to uh, Serenus briefly, and she said again that even at night he's just in a lot of pain. And I trust that this, God is using this to cause him to draw near to himself. But I would just ask and again encourage you to pray that God would use that in his life. And, and likewise, when these trials come, or if they're already happening in your life, you would cling to the cross, you would cling to Christ, and you would cling to the Word, and that you would allow Him to prune you and to shape you and to hone you. I'm aware of a man in our congregation this morning. A certain man here. And before this person was saved, they were a rebellious man. They were a rebellious person. He was full of pride. He's full of arrogance. He's full of himself. His uh, desire was to boast of himself. His desire was to boast of his accomplishments, the things that he had done. And though they weren't much, that was his goal. I want to read a quote this morning from John Piper, briefly. He writes, God is the king of the universe. He has absolute creator rights over this world and everyone in it. But there is rebellion on all sides. And his authority is scorned by millions. So the Lord sends preachers into the world to cry out that God reigns. That he will not suffer his glory to be scorned indefinitely that He will vindicate His name in great and terrible wrath, but that for now a full and free amnesty is offered to all the rebel subjects who will turn from the rebellion, call on Him for mercy, bow before His throne, and swear allegiance to Him forever. This amnesty is signed in the blood of His Son. Well, I think this individual heard a message like that. He heard and saw the clear rebellion in his own life, his rebellion against God's sovereignty. He saw his own utter foolishness. And he turned to that gospel. He turned to Christ. And he clings to that. He clings to that amnesty. But in this individual, that clinging, in a sense, his, his grasp has grown greater and greater because he sees his sin grows deeper and deeper. And he sees that areas that he thought were conquered in his life, they're not really conquered. He sees areas of pride and sin in his life that he he thinks he's done battling, but he's not really done battling. And so he cries out, I pray for this man. I pray for his soul. I pray for his life. I pray for his sanctification. I exhort him all the time through the Word and prayer that he would draw near to the Lord and that he would allow himself to be sanctified by the truth. Well, that person is myself. It's my soul I'm concerned about. 
And I pray that this morning that's the same for you. That, that as you evaluate your life, you're in the same boat as I am. You're, you're clinging to the cross more and more. You see your own failures to draw near to Christ. You see your own struggles with sin. You see the same recurrences over and over. And you're crying out to the Lord that He would sanctify you. Well, I think that this morning's text will encourage your hearts. I think that it will challenge you. I think that it's a humbling, convicting passage. But I think that the theme of it, and I think that the, what's inside it, it's very familiar to us. We've heard these things over and over and over. Sunday after Sunday, day after day, we read the Word of God and we convict ourselves and we allow the Word to convict us in these things. And this morning's message might not sound new to you. But I want to encourage you that the people that received this letter, it wasn't new to them either. That the things that Peter wrote to them, it was the things that they'd heard over and over. And I think it's even more profound because it's the Apostle Peter writing to these saints. And these saints had been under his preaching. They'd perhaps been under the best teaching. You know, they're under an Apostle himself. Hearing the Gospel, hearing the Word, hearing Him expound on the Old Testament. Hearing Him prophesy with the New Testament. And here they're sitting under these things. Hearing the Word of God. But look with me in verse 12. In light of the fact that they already know these things, look what Peter writes to these saints. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present within you. You already know these things. I know you know these things. But he says in verse 13, But I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. It's very interesting, even as Paul wrote to Timothy, his time's almost up, he's ready to depart, he's ready to receive the prize. Peter writes very similarly here. Verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my dwelling is imminent. He's about ready to die, probably suffer martyrdom. And he knows that. So he's urging his saints again. I told you these things and I preached them to you over and over and over. But you know what? I understand mankind. I understand sheep. I understand people. That we need to continue to hear the Word of God until it just bores itself. And it will never be done doing so until we leave this earth. And so he says, I will tell you these things so that when I'm gone, you can recall them to mind. That they will come into your mind and you will abide. And so we, we dive in this morning with that perspective. That though we've heard these things, we need to hear them again. And so we're just going to go right in. And if you have an outline today, I don't know if they made them out, but it will help help you and help me guide us through this. The section we're first going to look at is why we can persevere. That's really what this message is about: persevering to salvation. And in that, in this text, in verses one through four, Peter shows us three reasons why we're able to persevere. Three reasons why we can press on towards the goal. That first reason is found in verse 1 there. Peter writing to them says, To those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It makes it very clear there that faith is given. That faith is handed over. You have the word that you've received the faith or you've obtained the faith, if you have the ESV. But the word is it's a tremendous word. It really means to receive by divine allotment. To receive by divine allotment. You know, it's the, it's the picture of, of a king merely picking out a poor subject from, from his kingdom, randomly going out and he decides according to his own desire and his own will that he wants to grant his subject a great and glorious gift. He wants to give them something incredible, something they could never receive something that they could have never earned, and He bestows that upon them in His grace and His mercy. And we see this word here, it's only used four times in the New Testament. It's used in John 19.24 when it talks about how the soldiers, they cast lots for Christ's clothes. They had no idea who was going to get them. They, they cast lots. Who's going to get them? We also see it in, in Luke 1.9 of Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, when he was, uh, he was selected by Lot to go in to the temple. And we also see it in Acts 117, 
when the disciples had cast lots to replace Judas. They had no idea what was going to happen. They had no idea who was going to be picked because it was, it was totally in God's sovereignty to do that. And so the whole picture of this idea of receiving is that it's fully by the grace of God. It's fully by His mercy. And I think nothing can explain the Word of God like the Word of God. We know Romans 9, 15 and 16. I think it states it very clear. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so Romans 9 reflects the introduction here to 2 Peter, that salvation is an absolute free bestowment by God by no other means. Okay? But that's just the beginning. Okay, we're just getting into this. This verse 1 is packed with truth that salvation is by grace alone. Look what he says there. That this faith comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look closely at that verse there. Peter doesn't say, by the righteousness of our God and also by our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, by the righteousness of our God, who is our Savior, who is Jesus Christ. And he's proclaiming the deity of Christ. That Lord and Savior both refer to Jesus. If you look down, if you will, at verse 11, very similar phrase, for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied. So Lord and Savior both define Jesus Christ. God and Savior, in verse 1, both define Jesus Christ. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 20, very similar. For if after we have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is again. Lord and Savior, defining Jesus Christ. And lastly, the very last verse of the book. What a great encouragement this last verse is. Peter writes to them, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the theme throughout this book. And so Peter wants to make that very clear that this salvation comes by grace through who is our God, who is our Savior, and that being Jesus Christ. And so Christ gets all the honor. Christ gets all the glory. And so Christ is the foundation. He has granted to us a faith. We are ready to build. And so let it be. We have the materials for this perseverance. He writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter begins offering this benediction, this prayer for them, that grace, that unmerited favor that he just described through Christ, and that peace, that position before God, that, op- that opposite, exact opposite of the wrath that was prepared for us. Colossians 1.21 says that although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless. It says that we were, we were alienated, we were separate from God, and we were hostile in mind. It means that we were God-haters. We loathed, we despised, we abhorred God. Really. And yet, you look back previously, Colossians 1.20 says that by Christ we have peace through the blood of His cross. And so that is what the, that's what the cross has done for us. It's taken us from being God-haters, having the sword of God laid at our throats, ready to destroy, and it's brought us into a merciful relationship with Him. And yet notice what Peter says there, that this grace and this peace, they abound in the knowledge of Christ. They, are, they abound in the knowledge. The more we know Him, the more it abounds. And I liken it to you know, the Cold War, per se. You know, for years we were at, at odds with Russia, you know, their nukes are pointed at us. Our nukes are pointed at them. We were ready to destroy one another. But then the, the peace treaty was signed. And hostility was, in a sense, taken away. But there's still that reality that, okay, the peace is there, but there's still a lot of insecurity about what I know about this person. There's still a lot of 
understanding that needs to take place before there's really trust there. And there's that sense there with God that as we grow in the knowledge of Him more and more, that we're sustained in believing that He really has been merciful to us, that He really has forgiven us. And that peace, that relationship with God grows. And it's all about knowing Him. It's absolutely impossible to repeat how many times why we've been saved for His glory and yet for our sake is that we might know Him. John 17.3, Jesus said, This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. So if knowing God is the purpose of our salvation, then the Bible is to be read. That God is to be studied. He is to be worshipped. He is to be revered. He is to be... He's to be adored. He's to be sought after. And it is through this, these materials of this relationship with God that we're equipped to persevere. Let her see. We're equipped for perseverance. Let me read these verses again. Verses 3 and 4. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is there in the world by lust. And you see that again, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything. It's the power of God, it's the glory of God, it's the strength of God that's given us and made us to be partakers. I mean, look at those words there. What has he, he given us? Seeing that His power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And I used to think that what He was talking about there was that He's given us everything we need you know, physically and that He's given us everything we need you know, spiritually to live for Him. But that word there, life, it's not... In the Greek, there's a couple words. There's bios... You know, physical life, what we see around us, food, clothing, shelter, life and breath. But that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about those physical things. It's talking about spiritual life. That He's given us everything we need to be born again. He's given us everything that we need to be drawn into a relationship with Him because of Christ. And then He couples that with godliness. And that word godliness literally means good worship or if you like, well-directed reverence. And it's really that external piety that life must come before worship can exist. If we have worship, but we don't have Zoe life, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's in vain. And that people all over the world, in the church, they're worshiping God and they're not even born again. And if life, if born again does not happen first, there's no reverence to God, there's no worship. But Peter says you've received it, by my great mercy, by God's great mercy, you've been allotted this. It's been given to you for a minute in this life. And so let's stop there for a moment. Do you recognize that in your life? Do you recognize that God has not failed to give you everything you need for life and godliness? So what that, what that text is saying is that there's no excuse for us, really. If God has given us everything to live the kind of life that pleases Him, it's saying that we are without excuse to live otherwise. There's no excuse. There's no excuse not to be a man of the Word, to be a woman of prayer. There's no excuse not to be boldly sharing Christ or to be faithfully, constantly, consistently sharing Christ. There's no excuse, husbands, to neglect the shepherding of your wives, to neglect the training up of your children. Because if we, if we do that, what we're showing the church and we're showing the world is that Christ has failed to give us everything. If we fail to live godly and we fail to fall through with our responsibilities, we're saying, God, you didn't give me what you said you give me. You didn't give me everything I need for life and godliness. Look at my failure, God. And we put God on display as a failure. And we make Him a liar. And so, Peter's saying, you know what? There's no excuse. You have everything you need. You have everything you need to be a godly man and woman. John Piper, he's not a rarity. He's a profound preacher. But he is not to be the rarity. 
Hudson Taylor, not a rarity, not an exception, wasn't given any more than we were given. The list goes on and on. You can think of every spiritual giant. But Peter's saying, you know what? You've been given the exact same things as they were given. You've been given everything you need to live a godly life. You've been given everything you need to please the Lord and to live for Him. And this is guaranteed. This is guaranteed by the the type and the way He has called us. Look there. That He's called us this way through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Okay? I won't say this you know, flippantly, but okay, you haven't been given these things by a used car salesman. Okay, if you're a used car salesman, that's fine. But we have you know, the understanding there. We haven't been given these things by a God who's ripping you off, by a God who's cheating you. That it's the weight, it's the glory, it's His own excellency that He's given us these things. That, we've grant, that he's, been, he's given these things to us. And so we should fall on our faces in thanksgiving. We should be worshiping God because of His great mercy that He has bestowed upon us. And verse 4 lines up with why we perceive such things. For by these, for by His divine power, and for by everything He's granted to us, for by these He's granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And she says that these promises have been given to you. What are some of those promises, very briefly? John 3.16 promises that if we believe in Him, we'll have eternal life. John 4.14 promises that Christ satisfies one's thirst. John 10.27-28 promises that nothing can steal us out of our Father's hand. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 promises that we've been given every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1, 7, that we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a promise. Philippians 3, 20, we have citizenship in heaven. Philippians 1, 6, that He started it and so He'll finish it. And the list goes on and on. But again, why did He grant us these promises? Why did He give us these things? Well, He says there that you might become partakers of of the divine nature. Okay, I like this point. He's given us these things that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Okay? So let me state this, okay? One's nature determines one's appetite. Right? One's nature determines one's appetite. Or you could say one's nature determines how he lives. One's nature determines how he lives. Okay, simply we understand this. Okay, a dog... It chases cats because it's a dog, right? The cat normally doesn't chase the dog. The dog chases the cat, wants to eat the cat, okay? The pig, what what does a pig do? pig likes to roll in its mud, likes to roll around in the slop, likes to get dirty, you know, likes to roll in filth. That's what a pig does, okay? No one teaches a pig that. That's what it does because it has a pig nature, okay? A salmon, Right? What does salmon do when it's time to spawn? They go, a steelhead will go from the ocean back to the river it came from, all the way back up to where it spawned. And it will there spawn again. How does it know that? Did, did another salmon teach it? A salmon, it internally knows how to do those things because that's what its nature is. And its nature determines how that salmon is going to live. And it follows its nature. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. Okay? Birds, they eat bird seed. Why? Because it's their nature. Okay, we can go deeper. Okay, a bird instinctively knows how to build a nest because of its nature. A dog knows how to hunt because of its nature. We can go through these things over and over. Okay? But it's the same for a man. A man's nature determines his appetite. A man's nature, who he is, it determines how he lives. And so human nature deems that when hunger and thirst after money, they're... Nature de- determines that they hunger and thirst for possessions. It determines that they hunger and thirst for sex. That's their nature. But we know that man's nature is depraved, it's fallen. And that works itself out, that the human nature deems that men live out in their sin. That women, they exalt and flaunt their bodies because they want attention, because they want pride. And men likewise, they seek after 
physical things, immorality. Man, they live in pride. They do everything. Play sports. They do everything for their pride. And they cheat. Man and, and, and mankind deceiving one another. Lying, cheating. The Ten Commandments are broken. Adultery. Disobedience to parents. Covetousness. Why? Because it's their nature. No one has to teach their kids, right? No one has to teach their kids to lie. And I'm, it's going to happen soon, I know. You know, Lydia, I'm not going to have to teach her to be rebellious to mommy and daddy. It's already there. The, the, the framework for that life, it's already instilled in her little heart. And she's ready to carry it out. Because it's her nature. Right? Take James's little motto when I flipped it around, right? Birds fly, fish swim, men sin. Because it's their nature. And a man only does what his nature is. And his nature is fully captivated to sin. But what we see here in verse 4 is precious promises, His divine power so that we can escape, that we can flee, that we can blow out a dodge of sin, that we can get away. We can be freed from sin and enslaved to righteousness because God has caused us to become like Him. He's granted to us a new nature. You know, Peter Smith, you know our missionary Peter Smith lives in the Czech Republic. Before that, he was a missionary in the Philippines. And I, when I was living with him in, in the Czech Republic, you know, we were always talking about stories, just lots of crazy things. And he told me about this one story of a dog they had. They had one certain dog. And this dog, he said, it was, the, it, was the, it was the most dumb dog he ever had. It was the most rebellious, disobedient dog that he ever had. Everyone in the Philippines has a dog, and they had a dog. It was a bad dog. And, you know, it would bite people, all sorts of stuff. So, and it was like, he had to take this dog and kill it. You can't let your, you know, if your dog bites, is doing these things, you can't keep it. It's harmful. Well, you know, he can't just shoot it because he's not a national. He's not allowed to have a gun. So he decides he's going to use a baseball bat. So he takes his dog out there, takes that bat, and, you know, you know Peter, he's all animated. And with all his might, he swings and clubs that dog right in the noggin. That dog falls down, and it gets right back up. You know what? The dog it didn't die. In fact, its skull wasn't crushed. In fact, what happened is the dog became the most obedient, attentive, disciplined dog he ever had. And that, that club on that dog's noggin, it changed that dog's nature. It changed that inner man, if you will. That dog became born again. It was a new dog. Okay? And that's what God, that's what He's done for us. He's, you know, He's Bible-thumped us, if you will. He has changed us through the power of the Word, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, He has caused us to be born again. Colossians 2.13 says that when you were dead, we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, that He made you alive together with Him. He made us alive. He changed our inner man. He changed our nature. Galatians 2.20, we know this verse. You can say it with me if you want. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We now have a new nature. Christ indwelling within us. Christ within us, causing us to have been able to escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. Become partakers of this new nature. That we can escape the corruption in the world by lust. And notice this, this is an incredible promise. Notice there, it's past tense. It's not even that we're escaping in a sense, but that as a Christian, we've escaped it. We've escaped what the world is being destroyed by. The world is being corrupted by lust, but it says that we have escaped it. My wife and I were watching the news once. Some of you have heard this story, this illustration before. We were watching this man being interviewed and something was immediately wrong with him. He couldn't understand his speech, very muddled. And even his face looked very strange. It looked plastic almost. And that's because it was. And what happened is, this man used to be a smoker, smoked all his life, and got cancer. Got cancer probably around his lymph nodes. 
And they had to start, you know, they did the chemo, but that didn't work. So they had to start cutting out the cancerous portions. But you know what they had to cut? They had to cut off his nose. They cut this man's nose off because the cancer was eating away his nose. But you know what? They cut it off and it didn't stop there. It started eating at his cheeks. And they had to cut out his cheeks. Then it started eating behind his eyes. So they had to cut out his eyes. And it started eating at his upper lip and they had to cut out his upper lip. So this man had no face left. There was a gaping hole in the middle of his head because of cancer. And these doctors had made a prosthetic for his face. And they put it on his face. And he had this fake face that he could take on and off. It looked, you know, it looked horrible, but it was much better than seeing this huge gaping hole. And that's what sin is doing to man. It's eating away at their life. It's destroying the world. And the world, they're smoking and they love it and they're spending their money on cigarettes. This is an illustration, so to speak. You know, they're, they're spending their money on pleasures. All the while, the sin is cancerous. It's destroying their life. And they don't know what it's doing. And it was doing that to us. But God has granted to us to become partakers of Him and He's allowed us to escape that corruption. We see the lasting effects in some ways of sin in our life. But thanks be to God that when we, when we see Him, we'll be transformed. The hole in our face will be removed. But those who don't get help, and by help I mean those who don't receive the Gospel, those who don't receive Christ, the antidote, the chemotherapy of their souls, just more than their flesh will perish. Their life will be lost. But God has granted to us to become partakers of that divine nature. The grace of God has crucified us with Christ. It is no longer us. It is that divine nature and dwelling within us. And we have been made dwelling places of God. And so just to briefly, before we move on, to summarize verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 is really, it's all about what God has done. It's all about the power of God in in weak, frail, undeserving, helpless people. It is His righteousness that brought us faith, verse 1. It is He that increases grace and peace through the knowledge of Him, verse 2. It is He alone that has given us everything we need to live a life worthy of Him, verse 3. He has saved us from sin and damnation, verse 4. And so now we get down to verse 5 there. And he says, now for this very reason. And we're going to get look at what we're to do in response to what God has done. But we need to remember that it is God who has done it. If we miss the transition that 1 through 4 is all about God and His mercy and His grace, if we miss that and try to move on to the next verses, there will be serious consequences. If verses 5 through 8 are preached without understanding the power through which we are able to live out such a calling, men will hopelessly try to justify themselves before God, right? If we try to live what we're going to look at morally excellent and full of knowledge and self-control and persevering in love, if we try to live that without regeneration, we're trying to justify ourselves before God. We're trying to work our way to please God and it's impossible. And so we have to understand that it's Christ that justifies us. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says about a man that tries to justify himself, about a man that tries to please God through his own works. He says, God's works of, re- of providence and redemption are greater than those of creation. And all his works of providence from the beginning of the generations of men were in order to make way for the purchasing of redemption. So he's saying from the history of the fall, even from that, from the reason God made the world and His plan of man to fall, everything that has happened in the history of man was to lead up to Christ coming, dying on the cross, so that He could cause men to be born again, that He could save men and draw them to Himself, so that John 12, the Father, would be glorified. And so Jonathan says, to take on yourself to work out redemption is a greater thing than if you had taken it upon yourself to create the world. He said, if, you, if you're going to endeavor to try to save yourself and do good works before God, you might as well try to create a whole world. You might as well try to create people. Because, because redemption is a far greater work than the creation of the world. And so that is the humble response and attitude we have to dive into section 2. Section 2 is how to persevere to salvation. How to persevere to salvation. He says there now for this very reason, since God has done all of it, 
applying all diligence in their face, apply moral excellence, knowledge, self-control. And we're going to go through this. But know how he describes this as we endeavor to set out on this journey to persevere to salvation. He says, with all diligence. With all diligence. ESV says, make every effort. Make every effort. Be diligent. It means to exert oneself. Forcefulness. And I like the word vehemence. It's a very good parallel word. It means to act with great force. It means to be full of vigor, energetic, violent, furious. To be diligent, vehement, furious towards our pursuit of God. And that is what this is. God has delivered us from the corruption of the world, but we are to be those who continue to fight against it, applying all diligence. See, God didn't stop. He didn't stop the corruption of the world from enacting upon the Christian. Satan is not bound from working on the believer. He's bound from indwelling, but he's not bound from tempting. He's not bound from afflicting. He's not bound to work against and to try to steal a heart away from God and to distract us. And so that means we have to be those that are on guard and vehement and diligent. Listen to what Christ said in Matthew 11, verse 12. He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Violent men take the kingdom of God by force. The pursuit of Christ to salvation isn't a waltz, it's not a dance, it's not a parade. Iraq was not taken over by American forces that walked in with pellet guns and paintball guns. That wouldn't do the duty. That wouldn't do the task. They would have been absolutely obliterated. And likewise, the kingdom of God will not be taken if you approach pursuit of Christ in the sake of your soul with a flippant attitude. I think Christ made that very clear. The kingdom of heaven is taken with violence. Christ used violent pictures to talk about how we're to pursue Him and how we're to enter the kingdom of God. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, you're to to gouge it out. That's bloody. It's violent pictures of how we're supposed to pursue even our salvation, how we're supposed to pursue entering into heaven. And so, with that, Peter gives us seven characteristics needed to persevere to salvation. Seven characteristics that we must apply, that we must be vigorous in if we are to enter the kingdom of God. This is adding to your faith, that faith, that foundation which God has granted to us, supply moral excellence, and really just that quality of life that is good. It means just be good. Morally excellent. Be a, be a morally excellent man. Plan on doing what's right. You're freed from sin. Live a life that is pleasing to God. And then he moves on to that moral excellence. You need to add knowledge. You need to diligently pursue the knowledge of God. Gnosis. The very reason why we read the Word of God is to know God. And so really, this is the fuel. Knowing God is the fuel of our perseverance. If we lose focus of why we're saved to know God, then we will lose all desire to live a vehement, godly, diligent life. If we lose the focus on who we're pursuing, then we won't even be concerned for our own souls. The very reason that people are going to hell is because they don't know God. Right? Second Thessalonians 1.9 Paul said that when Christ returns, He will be dealing out retribution to who? To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel. Retribution, punishment comes to those who don't know God personally. And for the Christian, that means that we must pursue knowledge continually, seeking God, knowing Him, communing with Him, fellowshipping with Him. And how many times have you heard this over and over how many times have we been exhorted to be men of the Word, to be men of prayer? But that is what we're constantly in need of. Reading the Word is how we know God. 
Why do you think that you want to know God if you don't want to read the Word? I mean, the two are equated, right? Our desire to know God is completely manifest in our pursuit of Him in the Word. Likewise, not pursuing Him in the Word, not pursuing Him in the spiritual disciplines of fellowship and intimacy is a direct manifestation that we don't really want to know Him. And we can, we can convince ourselves all we want that, that we know God, that we're pursuing Him. And we can talk ourselves up. We can convince ourselves that we're okay with Him. But when we, if we want to be very honest, our pursuit of Him in the Word and prayer is the manifestation of do we really want to know Him? You know, we, this is so practical, right? I mean, we have friends that we haven't talked to in a long time. We have people in the church that they stop coming. They stop coming to our fellowship. And we pursue them and, and we call them. And we, and we try to you know, talk with them and encourage them and ask them, why, you know, why aren't you fellowshipping? Why aren't you coming? But you know what? They're not calling us back. You know, you send them emails and leave messages. They don't call you back. Why? Because they don't want to talk to you. Because they don't want to know you. Why? Because you want to talk about God. You want to talk about the truth. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about God. And just like friends that don't want to know you, it's the same with friends that don't really want to know God, that don't really pursue the Lord. Many of His children want to know Him, perhaps because they are not really His children. Many of His children, they, they think they want to know Him, but they don't really want to. And we'd like to lay claim to Psalm 19. I'd like to lay claim to it. He says, David says in the word there, more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know, we, we quote that and we memorize it. You know, but after my own heart, you know, I take that psalm and the reality of that psalm in my own heart is much different. The manifestation really is your word is it, is it about as desirable as lead? Yes, as heavy, weighty lead. It is also about as sweet to me as spoiled milk. Yes, spoiled milk. That's Marcus 19 at times. Maybe for you as well. We need to change our hearts. We need to pursue a knowledge of God. The exhortation is to never stop seeking after the Lord. Seek God in His Word. And yet look what Look what the knowledge of God leads to. It is only through the knowledge of God that we can pursue the next quality, that of self-control. Self-control. This one's quite easy, right? At least it seems so on the surface. Made up of two simple words, self, me, myself and I, and control. Control, manage, restrain, manipulate, have authority over, direct. That is, that is how a Christian is to be characterized by. By self-control. By authority over oneself. Sounds simple, right? You know, I think Lydia is a great example of self-control or the opposite, if you will. Okay? Her God is her appetite, right? Her God is, you know, the God is her appetite, their glory is in her shame. She bows down to her stomach. Whenever her stomach is hungry... She'll let you know. She starts singing praises to her stomach. She's crying out, feed me and feed me now. And she, she's helpless in the sense to that. She's bound to the authority of her body. Okay, her bowels, she has no control over them. You know, that's why you, your children wear diapers, right? Because they can't control that. I mean, I can, she's nine weeks old and I can talk to her every day and tell her, be potty trained, right? But she hasn't listened to me yet because she has no control over herself. She's self-controlledless. It's impossible. Her arms flail about. We have to cut her little fingernails because she scratches her face. She's doing all these things because she has no control over her body. And self-control is that you are the ruler, the master, the authority of your own body. And it's really because the Holy Spirit is. Because He's in you. He has given you authority. He's given you control. So you're the one who makes decisions. You carry Him out. Right, self-control, practically, simple thing. Self-control is the, the getting up when the alarm goes off, right? All of us, this is our nemesis. The alarm goes off, and what is our first thing? You know, some of you slap it, some of you chuck it across the room. 
because you don't like that thing because you want to sleep. And I, I did this yesterday. Alarm went off at 6, 7 o'clock. I hear knocking on my door because I, I was supposed to be up. Lack of self-control. Lack of being in control of myself. Exercising. Self-control. Watching what you eat. Eating only to when you're content. And we live in a society of gluttony. We stuff ourselves every meal. And we, and, and we brush over like it's nothing, but it, it's sin. It's not self-control. And likewise with our speech, controlling the words that come forth from our mouth. You know, thinking through what we're going to say. How many of us struggle with this words that come out and we're like, why did I say that? What in the world was I thinking? It's because our mind was in control of really ourself. I'll explain that more in a minute. Because self-control is setting your mind on the things of God rather than setting your mind on the things of the world and allowing the world to control you. Hey, either God will control you, either God will allow you and enable you to control yourself, or the world will control you. That's really reality. So I ask you, are you in control of your mind? Are you in control of your thoughts? The, the, the manifestations of the physical things is really because of the mind. Do you control what, what comes into your mind? I make this very practical for myself. Okay, we just got done singing praises to God, worshiping Him. Now, how many of you, how many of you were singing and at the same time there was all these other thoughts in your mind? All these other things competing for your heart and your focus to be on God alone. We see the words on the screen and we, we cry these songs out to Him. At the same time, we're thinking of the things that we have to do after church. Or we're thinking of what we did yesterday. Or we're thinking of any, any billions of things that just come into our mind. And those things, they're fighting and they win. And they suck us away. And they, we just think about them. We don't even give second thought. Now, how many times are you driving? And you get home and you don't even know how you got home. You don't even know what you're thinking about. You just randomly got home. And your, your thoughts aren't controlled. You're not in control of your mind. But a Christian man is controlled. His mind is fixed. And to set your mind on the things above is diligence. It is forcefulness over your mind. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Set your mind. And I would say that it is impossible to have control of your mind unless the Word of God has control of your mind. The reason why we don't have our thoughts fixed on God is because there's nothing in there to be fixed on God about. Our minds are so easily fixed on the books we're reading and the movies we're watching and the music we're listening to because what is in your mind is what you're fixed on. Likewise, the, the little amount of the Word in your mind results in little amount of being fixed upon Him. What is in your mind is what controls you. What is in your mind is what you're fixed upon. Again, why we need to be those of, of the Word. You know, I mean, I say this this is not legalism at all. This is an exhortation to you, but I don't watch a whole lot of TV. I don't watch very many movies. You know, certainly because of what is, is in most of them. But I don't know why for me, if I watch a movie, like, it's like it's in my mind and I can't get it out. My wife is fine. You know, we can go watch Lord of the Rings and that's it. She's not going to think about it anymore. But I'll watch it and for like two weeks, it's like these thoughts are just playing back in my mind and the war and the swords and everything is just going on. And it's like running its way in my mind again. That's how my mind is. And I think lots of you are like that too. It's like what you put in, your mind is fixed on it. Your mind just goes along with it. Whimsically just carried along. But the Christian has his mind set on Christ because the Word of God is put in. It's placed in his mind. Self-control is the application of knowledge. What you put in is what you will meditate on. It's what will come out. And it's through that self-control that we move on to perseverance. Without self-control, there can be no perseverance. It means to remain under. Hupameno, to, to be under something. And again, what comes to my mind is Atlas, right? We've seen that, the picture of this world. And there's this man. He's intense. He's full of muscles. And he's, he's hunched over and the world is on his back. He's bearing the weight of the world. And that is, in a sense, the Christian. We're bearing the weight of the world. We're bearing the weight of the spiritual realities of the gospel. We're bearing the weight of our sin, constantly being defeated, yet constantly rising up again to pursue Christ. And the things of the world are crushing us. 
and the thoughts of the world, the knowledge of the world is trying to infiltrate our mind. But Peter says, if you put the Word of God in your mind, then you can persevere. You can remain under the weight of the world. You can be in control. If you fail to persevere, in a way, it's, it's failure of self-control. It's failure to have the Word in your mind. And then he continues on, this perseverance, it leads to godliness. And we looked at that briefly, that directed worship. And then he moves on from godliness to brotherly kindness. Philadelphia, brotherly love, affections. Now just note the progression here very briefly. That goodness leads to knowledge. Then unless there's, unless there's goodness in our life, we can't come to the Word of God. If there's sin in our lives perpetually and we don't, we're not confessing it, we think we come to the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit's going to work, we're wrong. And yet it's when we're walking with the Lord and we come to Him and we're clean that knowledge can be put into our minds and that we can therefore have self-control. And then that self-control isn't just a one-time, you know, going to the gym one time doesn't make you fit, but that you continually go to the gym, you continually work out and it leads to being in shape. Likewise, continual self-control leads to godliness. And that continual godliness enables you to be a man that loves others, brotherly kindness. And just practically, that means fellowshipping, talking to one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, showing affections for one another, kindness. And if you're really a man, it means greeting one another with a holy kiss. If you do that, you'll be more of a man than I am. Okay? That brotherly kindness results finally in love, is the, the paramount characteristic is the, is the pinnacle, is the culmination of a pursuit of Christ. And is that most famous agape word, self-sacrifice. And I believe it's here because it is the first, it is the last, it is the preeminent, it is the most needed characteristic of dying to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13.3, we know this. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is the pinnacle because of 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls us. Love is patient. It is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is final. And so Peter finishes those qualities. And he says, If these are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Living a life in verses 5-7 through seven tells us that we will do exactly what was preached last week, that we'll bear fruit. And that really, this really parallels Galatians 5. What Peter describes is almost parallel to the fruit of the Spirit. That real redemption results in these things. And yet lack of these things shows that there is not real redemption. And that's why he says in verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Either you're blind, you've never seen Christ, you've never seen the Gospel. The Gospel of Christ has never been illumined into your mind, into your heart, and has never regenerated you. You're blind to it. Or you're short-sighted. You have forgotten what you saw. You have forgotten the glory of Christ. You have forgotten the power of the gospel in your life and you are not bearing fruit for the glory of God. You have forgotten your purifications from your former sins because you have forgotten that it is only through remembering what God has done and applying vigorously the gospel in your life. You have forgotten those things and you are sinning. And I liken a Christian in some sense to the tree. Right? A Christian is sometimes like a tree. Its growth is very slow. You can watch a tree for days, for weeks, and for, for months and not see any change, but it's still growing. Likewise with a Christian. There's times of struggle. There's times of difficulty. But if there's no growth, if a tree stops, ever stops growing, it's because it's dead. Because it's dead. Likewise, a Christian cannot stop growing. Because he says there, in verse 8, that you're increasing, you're always growing. 
And then he says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, be all the more vehement to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. When God saves, when God saves people are living in sin or faintly pursuing Him, He is not glorified because His purpose of saving them is not carried out. Right? If He saved us for His glory, but we're not bearing fruit, then we're purposeless to Him. That's what James is saying. The, the fruitless branch is cut off because it's not doing what God wants to do. Bear fruit for His glory. This is an incredible text because Peter is, thoroughly believes in the doctrines of election and predestination and calling. Because he says in verse 10, Therefore be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Peter knows that God predestines the foundation of the world. He knows that God calls us. But none of us in here have a halo. And none of us in here got a certificate of proof of salvation. We have the, the, the Holy Spirit as a deposit of our inheritance. And how do we know we have the Holy Spirit? By living out verses 5 through 8. By living in John 15, by abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit. And so we prove those doctrines of election by bearing fruit. That's the only way we know. There's no other way. You know, if you're a Calvinist and you, and you say you believe in those doctrines, but you don't see fruit in your life, then you're not born again. The only way you prove that election is real in your life is by bearing fruit for the glory of God. So Peter says, be furious, be diligent. Your life is the proof of your predestination. Your life is the proof of your predestination. Your living is the evidence of your election. Your living is the evidence of your election. Your conduct is is the confirmation of your calling. And so lastly, this text here isn't to cause us to be weary. It's not to merely just cause us to be full of fear and trembling and question of whether we're truly saved. And it, and it does do that. It does cause us to hardly evaluate our life and to see where we're at with the Lord. But it demands us to live and to bear fruit for God. It demands us to delight in what is most satisfying, knowing God and worshiping Him. And he says that in verse 11, For in this way, for in this kind of life, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you want to have assurance? It's right here in the text. Have a fruitful life for God. Live for Him. Know Him. Delight in Him. Control your life. We hear these things over and over. But Peter was willing to tell these people, even on his very last breath, his last words, I'm about ready to depart, but I'm going to tell you these things so many times so that after I'm gone, they will come into your mind. Like those songs from, the, from eighth grade that just somehow come back into our minds. We wish that they would go away. So the Word of God will bore itself into your hearts that it will never, ever escape your thoughts and it will constantly come to the surface of your mind and your heart. I urge you to that life. Practically, I'd urge you even to memorize this passage. For myself, it's just been a great encouragement. It's been a great exhortation to me, constant reminder to me to evaluate my life and to bear fruit and to live for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have granted to us everything we need for a godly life. That You have stopped the cancer of the world from destroying our souls. And You have informed us of Your great love for us. You have revealed to us the mercies of the Gospel through Jesus Christ. You have bestowed upon us excellent graces. And You've given us everything we need to live a life that pleases You. Lord, we know these things. Lord, I pray that we would live for You, that even today those that hear these things over and over, God, they would repent of not bearing fruit. Hearing sermons like these 
for years and yet not bearing fruit, not increasing in the knowledge of God, not self-controlled, not loving brethren and not full of love and self-sacrifice. God, I pray that You would prune so that You don't cut off. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Peter's shepherding heart to exhort until he's blue in the face, until he's ready to die. Lord, I pray that we'd be like that with one another, that we would never grow weary of exhorting one another. We would never grow weary of exhorting one another all the more as the day draws near. That we'd be those that persevere to salvation. That we'd be those that have full assurance that Your Spirit dwells within us. I thank You for what You're doing. In Your name we pray. Amen.